Welcome to Condensed Matter, condensing recent work in metaphysics and the philosophy of science down to what matters. I'm your host, Sam Kinton Knight. The focus of this episode is Brian McLoon's article, Calculus and Counterpossibles in Science, published in Synthase in 2020. If the vase were dropped, it would break. If I were to throw a tennis ball as hard as I could, it would go into orbit. These are examples of counterfactual conditionals. They say something about what would be the case if things were different. Now the first example, if the vase were dropped, it would break, is true. The vase is sufficiently fragile that it would not remain intact if dropped. But the second example, if I were to throw a tennis ball as hard as I could it would go into orbit, is clearly false, because I'm nowhere near strong enough to accelerate a tennis ball into orbit around the Earth. Counterfactuals are importantly different from what philosophers call ordinary indicative conditionals. In the indicative mood, the second example would be something like, if I throw a tennis ball as hard as I can, it goes into orbit. Now according to orthodoxy, An indicative conditional is false only when its antecedent is true and its consequent false. So if it's true that I throw a tennis ball as hard as I can, but false that the tennis ball goes into orbit, then the conditional, if I throw a tennis ball as hard as I can, it goes into orbit, is false. So far so good. But whenever the antecedent of an indicative conditional is false, the whole conditional is true. So if it's false that I throw a tennis ball as hard as I can, because I never throw a tennis ball, then it turns out that it is true that if I throw a tennis ball as hard as I can, it goes into orbit. This seems like an odd result. Even if I never throw a tennis ball as hard as I can, we want to say that it's false that if I were to throw a tennis ball as hard as I can, it would go into orbit. But we're now in the subjunctive or counterfactual mood. We're talking about what would be the case if things were different. But counterfactuals are distinctively modal. They involve talk about other possibilities. The orthodox semantics for counterfactuals has it that a counterfactual such as, if I were to throw a tennis ball as hard as I could, it would go into orbit, is true, roughly speaking, just in case the nearest possible world, i.e. the world most similar to actuality, in which I throw the ball my hardest, is one in which it goes into orbit. Now since the nearest possible world in which I throw the ball my hardest is not also one in which I have superhuman strength, it's not the case that in that world my throw goes into orbit, hence the conditional is false, as we expect. Problems arise when we consider a counterfactual with an impossible antecedent. Consider, if my tennis ball were a round square, then it would go into orbit. Maybe we want to say that this is false. After all, what does being a round square have to do with being in orbit? However, according to the orthodox semantics for counterfactuals, if a counterfactual has an impossible antecedent, so there are no possible worlds at which the antecedent is true, then the whole counterfactual is true vacuously. Since being a round square is impossible, It's true vacuously that if my tennis ball were a round square, then it would go into orbit. Brian McLoon is interested in counterfactuals with impossible antecedents that feature in scientific practice. The examples he focuses on arise when some aspect of the world, a population of rabbits for example, is modelled using calculus. For McLoon's purposes, the relevant feature of a model of the growth of a population of rabbits using calculus is that the model assumes that the population of rabbits is a continuous quantity. From the assumption that a population of rabbits is a continuous quantity, among some other assumptions, the model yields certain predictions about the rate of change of the population. Now McLuhan argues that we can render the model of the rabbit population as a counterfactual, 
which says that if things were as the model describes, then we could expect such and such to be the case. But the model describes an impossibility, namely that rabbits are a continuous quantity. Rabbits, it seems, are metaphysically necessarily discrete. It follows from the orthodox counterfactual semantics that the counterfactuals implied by the model of a rabbit population are all vacuously true. But this seems wrong because while it may well be true that if things were as the model describes, the population won't go extinct, it's surely false that if things were as the model describes, the moon would be made of cheese. In general, any use of calculus to model a necessarily discrete quantity will yield counterfactuals with metaphysically impossible antecedents. The relevant counterfactuals will be counterpossibles, and the orthodox counterfactual semantics says that all such counterpossibles are vacuously true. McLuhan argues that we do not want to render all of these counterpossibles vacuously true, and hence that we need to rethink the semantics for counterfactuals. Before presenting his preferred semantics, McLuhan discusses why one might want to embrace orthodoxy, according to which all counterpossibles, that's counterfactuals with impossible antecedents, are vacuously true. In particular, McLuhan discusses Timothy Williamson's influential work on this topic. Williamson concedes that many counterpossibles seem, at first blush, as if they are non-vacuously true or false. However, Williamson argues that once we begin to theorise in some more detail about the logic and semantics of counterfactuals, the vacuous interpretation of counterpossibles is best, all things considered. In short, Williamson's argument is that rejecting the vacuity of counterpossibles pushes us to give up certain attractive axioms of the logic of counterfactuals. Since we don't want to give up these attractive axioms, we should maintain that all counterpossibles are vacuously true. McLuhan's counter-argument is that these attractive axioms are only attractive if one is already under the impression that counterpossibles are vacuous. In general, McLuhan thinks that we should do more to accommodate what he calls our reflective judgments on the truth values of counterfactuals and counterpossibles, that is, the judgments that we make that persist in the face of certain scrutiny. For example, we should reflect on the fact that science does a pretty good job of reasoning counterfactually, and that this reasoning is anchored in mathematical inference. This should then inspire confidence in, for example, our judgment that a counterfactual which says, if things were as described by a differential equation, a population of rabbits would go extinct, is non-vacuously false. It follows mathematically from the model that the population never goes extinct. McLuhan's task, then, is to develop a counterfactual semantics that does not render the relevant counterpossibles, ones yielded by models that use differential equations, vacuously true. In short, the suggestion is that we admit impossible worlds alongside the possible worlds. So, if our model of the rabbit population is a differential equation, the counterfactual, if things were as described by the model, then the population will go extinct, is false, because in the nearest impossible world, one where, among other things, the quantity of rabbits is continuous, the population does not go extinct because this is precluded by the mathematics of the model. There are mathematically impossible worlds where the population goes extinct, but these are further from actuality, that's to say they're less similar to actuality than the world with just one impossibility, namely that according to which rabbits are a continuous quantity. So we do not need to evaluate the counterfactual at these more distant impossible worlds. Admitting impossible worlds into our counterfactual semantics allows us to account for the truth values of counterpossibles in a way that is consistent with our reflective judgments on what those truth values should be, rather than just rendering all counterpossibles vacuously true, regardless of what is suggested by science.
It seems important to McLuhan's argument that in the examples at issue, counterpossibles that follow from differential equations, the consequent follows the antecedent mathematically. McLuhan seems to take the fact that the reasoning here is anchored in mathematical inference to support our judgments to the effect that these counterpossibles are non-vacuous. The fact that the consequent follows the antecedent mathematically is also an important feature of McLuhan's semantics. Near the end of the paper he says, counterpossibles formulated from these models will be true if the consequent mathematically follows from the antecedent, but false if the truth of the antecedent mathematically rules out the truth of the consequent. My concern is that it is the mathematics that is doing all the work here. McLuhan says that a counterpossible formulated from a differential equation will be true if the consequent mathematically follows from the antecedent, but now it seems to me that this mathematical implication is the full story about the truth of these statements, and that the detour through impossible worlds is unnecessary. I also have a general worry about impossible worlds, namely that their introduction does serious damage to our concept of possibility. The most basic job for possible worlds is surely to analyse or at least elucidate possibility. We want to say that something is possible if and only if it's true at some possible world. But if there are impossible worlds on the scene, we need some way of distinguishing the possible worlds from the impossible worlds if our account of possibility in terms of worlds is going to work. So perhaps we say something like, possible worlds are consistent sets of propositions, but impossible worlds need not be consistent. The problem here is that consistency is a modal notion, so we need to know what consistency is in order to be sure that we can identify the possible worlds. What does it mean for some propositions to be consistent? Does it mean that they are true at some possible world? Perhaps, but now we have a tight circle. Possible worlds are understood in terms of consistency, and consistency in terms of possible worlds, and we arguably get little in the way of elucidation, and certainly nothing in the way of analysis of modality. We really seem pushed to draw a deeper metaphysical distinction between the possible worlds and the impossible worlds. Perhaps the former are more real in a sense than the latter. But if this is the case, then a semantics in terms of impossible worlds, such as a semantics for counterpossibles in terms of impossible worlds, as McLuhan suggests, would be less realist than a semantics for ordinary counterfactuals. My suspicion is that to be a realist about counterfactuals and an anti-realist about counterpossibles is a retreat to the idea that counterpossibles are vacuous after all. Thanks for listening to Condensed Matter. Please rate and review the show on your favourite app so that more people can find it. There's also a link to the show's Patreon page in the episode notes. Your support will help towards the costs associated with hosting and production and will lead to improvements in your future listening experience. Patrons of the show will also get the chance to suggest articles and guests for future episodes. 